there again, we are thankful for your word, that it is truth, uh, and that, Father, it can sanctify us, set us apart, uh, help us. You've given us everything we need for life and holiness. Father, through your Holy Spirit tonight, would you open your word to us? Would you present your truth in a new way that we would understand better who Jesus is and what he's done for us? Father, give us a glimpse into the reality uh, of this last week of his life on earth. And uh, we just praise you for Jesus and for what he was willing to do. In In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, I've given you a chart. It took me the better part of all week to put this all together. Uh, because you can go to a lot of commentaries and a lot of books, and they about all, Sarah goes, my wife, as I was telling her, you know, man, this is just, it's killing me. I started out really small, and anytime she knows when I start out something small, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow, which is why my messages are 40 minutes long on a Sunday morning, because they just keep growing. And uh, she said, isn't there a chart already done somewhere? And I said, yeah, there is, but I want to learn as I begin piecing it all together and make my own chart. And uh, of that last week and the the verses and the events and all of that. And what I have found is they don't all agree. Uh, And so I had to go through some of that where they didn't agree on the events and what day they happened so that I get a better, better understanding. Now, you may add this to three other charts and come up with your own Uh, on a few of the the items that they don't necessarily agree with the timeline. And some of that timeline is difficult because as I was going through it, Matthew doesn't care about what day it was. He just tells you the events and the stories and the things he remembers that the Holy Spirit brought back to his mind. Mark, on the other hand, would oftentimes say early the next morning, later that evening. And it was very helpful to go back to Mark and begin putting the days and the timelines together. So here's what we have. Jesus on day one, which is Palm Sunday, okay, Jesus had spent Friday and Saturday in Bethany um, with probably, as best we can tell, that's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, so he probably spent time with them and uh, that day as, as he was getting ready to come into uh, Jerusalem. And so we see in Matthew chapter 21 is where this triumphal entry starts. Uh, Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John says very little about it. Uh, John doesn't have a whole lot to say about the first two or three days. He really gets involved once Thursday gets there uh, and the Passover meal. So um, he does mention the triumphal entry in chapter 12, uh, but it's pretty much just a mention. Um, So Jesus sends two of his disciples into town to talk to a man about a horse. And, you know, they say, you know, want to make preparations, go talk to this guy. You'll see he's got a colt that's never been ridden uh, and tell him that the the master has need of it. And he immediately gives him the the horse, the colt, takes it out, and Jesus rides that colt in and uh, in the triumphal entry. And and you know that... uh, those of you that have read it, familiar with the Easter story, people were lining the, the way in. A lot of times we have the idea that um, it was once he got to the gate of Jerusalem that people were all there. Uh-uh. They met him way outside Jerusalem. Bethany was probably about five or six miles. And somewhere on that, in those five or six miles, the people started coming. And so it could have been a one or two mile parade procession coming into the city as all the people came out uh, to meet him and greet him and lay the coats down on the, on the ground and the palm branches and, and all of those things. So uh, that triumphal entry is, is really a, a major thing as the people are, are gathered around him and accepting him and tells a little bit about the fickleness of people because we know in just five days they're going to turn and the majority of the people are going to turn on him. So, uh, triumphal entry at some point, and Monday or Sunday and Monday is a little foggy between the, uh, the gospel writers. Um, as you can see, that we don't necessarily go in chronological order uh, through Matthew because he does jump around where Mark kind of lays it out for us. But at some point, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He's coming in for what he knows is the last time. 
he will not be leaving Jerusalem and returning in ministry the way he was used to. This was his last time into Jerusalem. And of all the the last three and a half years of of preaching and teaching and going to the temple for Passover and, and for the feasts and celebrations, he realized now this was his last time in. And he took a step back and looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept, saying, you know, you had every opportunity, and you're not getting it. You just didn't get it. And, yeah. Colt. A donkey's colt. Is that what it says? A donkey's colt. Okay, I used a horse to try to be funny. Um, yeah, it was a donkey's colt. Right. Yes, he, and rode in on a donkey's colt. Right. Thank you. Um, and so he, he weeps over Jerusalem as he looks down upon it. Luke is the only one that tells us that. That, that weeping over Jerusalem doesn't appear in any of the other writings. Only Luke... Uh, talks about that. As he gets into Jerusalem, he has a time of healing uh, and, and playing with the children. Uh, you know, the children are gathered around him, and that's where, you know, he, he pulls the children to him and, uh, and heals many, many people uh, during that day on Palm Sunday. Um, and then he goes back to Bethany for the night. He tends to make Bethany his home base at night. He'll go into Jerusalem, but he goes back to I can only assume uh, Lazarus's house. Monday morning, he gets up, and they're heading back into Jerusalem, and he is hungry for breakfast, comes up to a fig tree. The fig tree was not producing any fruit, and he curses the fig tree because there was no fruit on it, and it immediately withers. Interestingly enough, this time of year, figs were not in season, so it was normal for the fig tree not to have figs. But at the same time, He wanted figs, the fig tree did not produce, and he cursed it, and it withered. Um, And the disciples were a little amazed by that. Didn't say a whole lot about it until the next day, Um, but they were amazed at at that. Um, As he gets into Jerusalem, he sees all the money changers. This is the second time in his ministry that he runs them out of the temple area. Um, He did it early on. We already talked about that time, and here again, He's going in and with the money changers. That's really the only information we have about Monday, the withered fig tree and the money changers, and he retires back out to Bethany to spend the night at, we assume, Lazarus's. Tuesday is a big day. Tuesday he gets up as they're heading back in. The disciples go past the fig tree, and they ask him about it. What, what is it that, about that fig tree? Tell us, tell us the story. In Luke chapter 11, or Mark chapter 11, um, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Jesus used that as a, as a teachable moment on faith, on prayer, um, you know, with Peter. And, you know, Peter just said, look, the, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus says, yeah. And you know what? If you have faith, you can say and do incredible, amazing things. Um, and so he, he takes that, that opportunity. Again, right up to the end, he's taking teachable moments and teaching his disciples, telling them the things that they are going to need to know. He gets into the city. He's sharing parables with the people teaching. And oddly enough, uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees uh, are there. Uh, they have gathered uh, with him. They're, they're in the crowd. They don't like uh, what he is saying. And they are trying to catch him up, trying to uh, trip him, trick him and uh, get him to say something that they will have reason then to charge him, uh, to, to arrest him uh, for. And it's interesting here that the Pharisees, um, in Matthew chapter 22, as well as Mark 12 and Luke 20, 
The Pharisees question Jesus on paying taxes. He answers them that. Sadducees see that the Pharisees kind of lost out, so they get together and they come back with a question on uh, uh, the question on marriage and the resurrection, and he answers them that. And so the Pharisees get back together and go, well, that didn't go so well. Let's see if we can go another route, and let's try with this one. And they come up with a question on the greatest commandment, and he answers them. And in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, I think it's going to be in here. It might be in the Matthew one. Um, uh, of all the commandments, which is the greatest. Uh, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to them, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. <laughs> Pharisees and Sadducees were done. And we'd had enough. We tried three times. We struck out all three times. This guy's too much for us. And from that point on, no one dared ask him a question. And he began asking questions. He began teaching. He began telling more and more parables uh, that day. Uh, he goes on to teach in the temple. Uh, Jesus takes a break, not a bread. Uh, he takes a break. Spell check's wonderful, but uh, bread is a word. And in the midst of his, this is when he observes the widow's offering. See, a lot of times we don't put these things in timeline perspective. And it's interesting to know when he took this break and saw the widow's offering. In the midst of an incredibly busy teaching day, two days before he knows he's going to be crucified. He's going to be arrested in, in just a couple days and, and hung on the cross. He's still stepping back and observing one little old widow dropping in two little old pennies and using it as a teachable moment. Still observing, still teaching, still caring. Uh, in the midst of all that's going around, he takes that time back. Um, Matthew chapter 24 and 25 Mark 13 and, and Luke 21, 5. Um, Mark and Luke, are, they just kind of breeze over it. But the disciples ask about what are the end, when is all this going to happen? How do we know? What are the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus takes them out to the Mount of Olives. And I think I have, got to turn this on. It's amazing how it works if you actually turn the power on. Um, you see there in the temple and all throughout Jerusalem. And Bethany is this way. This here is to Bethany. I know that's hard, probably impossible to read, actually. Um, this is the road to Bethany. Uh, and the Mount of Olives is out in this general area. Um, Gethsemane, which is right here, the Garden of Gethsemane, is actually on the Mount of Olives. And so he takes the, the disciples out of the city, and they go to the Mount of Olives, and he begins to explain to them what the end of the age is going to look like, things that they can expect. And Mar uh, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, um, and yeah, 24 and 25 are called the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is the, he's sharing on the Mount of Olives. And probably some of the best end times teaching, it, it's all right there. And it's Jesus explaining so that his disciples are aware of what is going to be happening. Happening. A lot of times we want to go to Revelation, um, but Revelation is awful confusing. Jesus spells it right out here is what's going to happen. And so if you're interested in, in Jesus' second coming and some of the things that need to happen to lead up to that and some of the signs of the end of the age, um, go to Matthew chapter 24 and begin reading uh, through there and get Jesus' explanation to his disciples. Um, at the end of that, in, in chapter 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, he says the Passover is just two days away. And so he is moving towards uh, the Passover. Interestingly enough, nothing happens on Wednesday. We have no records of Wednesday. We, we read that the Passover is two days away on Tuesday, and the next thing we have in Scripture is preparation for the Passover. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. It was a day of silence. Jesus may have spent the entire day away in prayer, preparing for what he knew was coming. Um, Gethsemane, the, the prayer that we have in the Garden of Gethsemane, may have just been his final time uh, in prayer. He may have spent all of Wednesday. We don't know what happened on Wednesday. Wednesday may very well have also been the day that Judas made the deal with the Pharisees to turn Jesus over to them. 
um, because that story does appear uh, in, in three of the Gospels at that time frame. But when we start uh, day five, Thursday, we see that it is the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the preparation that, that is to go into that. And Jesus tells them uh, to go into town, uh, go into the city to a certain man in Matthew chapter 25, or 26, 18. Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointment time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Um, not a whole lot happened on Thursday during the day. Disciples went in, found the man, the house, and began to make the preparations, began to get the meal ready, uh, the, the, the upper room ready. Again, the upper room, uh, as best we can tell, is right down here, um, is the upper room. And so they would have come in from Bethany uh, into Jerusalem and met in that upper room. Uh, again, they're not sure exactly where it's at, but they feel it's in that vicinity of the town. Um, and then he shares the Last Supper with them in the evening. Uh, just the 12 of them, uh, the 12 and Jesus, there's 13 there. Judas doesn't stay very long um, as he is revealed as the betrayer. Um, <clears throat> and uh, as many times as I have read the Gospels, for whatever reason, I never put together that John chapter 14, with the, in my father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, um, turn to John chapter 14 so you can actually see it. John chapter 14, when he comforts his disciples, uh, he talks about that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the vine and the branches. You know, we're familiar with that story, um, that, that analogy. All of that was Jesus' teachings in the upper room. Because it's, it's, all of that follows the feet washing, and, and John is the only one that talks about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. The other three don't, don't mention it. Um, but John doesn't mention the bread and the cup, and the other three do. So we put all of that together. And it was in the upper room that Jesus sat down and began teaching about the Holy Spirit coming, about Him being the way, the truth, and the life, about I'm going to a place to, to prepare a place for you, and where I'm going, you, you will come. You know, I, I, I will show you the way. And they're beginning to ask questions. How do we know where you're going? How, how, how can we get there? And, and he, just, he begins laying it all out for them. Uh, he talks about, you know, staying connected to Him. And I can't help but think that there's an urgency in his voice as he's telling them these things. I'm sure there's not an urgency in their ears, but I'm sure there's an urgency in his voice because he knows, guys, this is it. You need to stay connected to me because the, the vine's going to be gone and the branch has to stay connected. You need to understand this. You need to understand that I'm going to send one who's who's going to come alongside you, who's going to be another counselor. And you need to stay connected with him and, and all of that and how the world's going to hate you. And I'm sure they weren't putting all this together. This was kind of an odd conversation for a Passover meal, for, the, for this, this feast meal. And, and he begins laying it all out. And, and the work in, in verse, or chapter 16, the, the work of the Holy Spirit and what he's going to do and how their grief will turn to joy. And they're thinking, what grief? They're still not getting it. They're still not understanding all that's going to happen. But he spends, and it has to be quite a while. I mean, we think the upper room, they went and they shared a meal, and then they went to the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed. They probably spent two or three hours conversing and Jesus sharing and pouring out the last bit of what they needed to know before he left them. And, and so that, that upper room experience was, was probably one they, they went back to time and time again because the teachings they would have gotten there is what's going to get them through the rest of their life, uh, the understanding of the Holy Spirit and Him needing. Because Jesus didn't really speak a whole lot about the Holy Spirit until then because He knew it's at that point that they really needed, really needed to have it. So after the upper room, uh, they leave. Um, Judas, of course, has, has already left 
and he's gone to find the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and all of the other enemies, chief priests and, and, and scribes, and uh, gather them together to come back. He knows exactly where to find Jesus. Um, whether there was already planned that this is where they would go or that's just their normal routine to go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but that's where they went. And we see that uh, while they are there, they're praying, and we know that uh, nine of them kind of at the front of the garden, Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John went a little deeper into the garden, and uh, he left Peter, James, and John, and he even went a little deeper into the garden to pray by himself. And we know twice that they, he came back and they were asleep. I mean, it's late. Um, you know, that I'd probably been asleep too. You probably would have been asleep too because it was late into the night at this point. And Jesus is, is pouring himself out to the Father. We have John chapter 17 is, is more than likely the prayers, part of the prayer anyway, that he prayed in that Garden of Gethsemane. Um, probably more accurately the Lord's Prayer than the one we have memorized. Uh, because this is, is him pouring out. Uh, he prays for himself. Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Uh, and, and he spends the first part of the prayer praying for, for, him, for himself. Um, then he prays for his disciples. And he spends time praying for, for their protection. Um, that he has taken the ones that, Jesus, that God has given him and he's, he's done with them what, he, what God had asked them to do. And now protect them, sanctify them, set them apart. Prepare them for, for the next stage of what their life is going to be. And then he prays for you and me. Because he prays... My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me. That's the believers of today. That, that in the Garden of Gethsemane, right here on the Mount of Olives, outside Jerusalem, on the night that he was betrayed, that he was going to face trial, mockery, beatings, uh, scourgings, uh, on the night that was going to be the worst night a human could ever go through, he prayed for you. Does that not just blow your mind? And not just prayed for you in general. He prayed for you. He knew us at that point. I think his connection with God at that point, he knew where we, were, where we would be at, what we would be doing. He, he was able to see and, and knew where, what he was praying for. And so with all the things going on, he prayed for us. Now, does that not give our life meaning and purpose? Does that not give our ministry and what we do on a day-to-day basis? We are an answer to that prayer. Not just for them, the 12, but for those who are going to believe because of their message. That's you and me, generations down the road of that message being shared. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. They're going to carry out the ministry. They're going to carry out the message. 2,000 years later, Butler, Pennsylvania, there's a group of people that he's praying for that need to become one, that need to understand what oneness with the Father is all about so that the world can see and they can believe as well because of their message. Folks, that's meaning and purpose for your life. When, you, when your feet hit the floor tomorrow morning, you got a purpose. Your whole day is to be one with the Father, one with other believers, so that the world may see that Jesus is true, that Jesus is the ultimate reality. Pontius Pilate said, what is truth? Jesus said, I have come to testify to the truth. My life is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when our feet hit the floor every morning, we are testifying to the truth as we live our life. That's meaning and purpose. I don't care what job you have. I don't care where you live. I don't care what your schedule says. That's purpose. To be an answer to this prayer from the Garden of Gethsemane. Praying in the Garden. His prayer is interrupted because there's now men coming. There are lights coming down this road, um, no doubt, They've left the temple area. Um, here's where the guards, this is the fortress of Antonia. Um, and this is where the guards would have been. The soldiers would have been living in this area. 
Pharisees and the Sadducees would have gone to the temple, probably gone out this road and headed for the garden with Judas. Um, and Jesus sees them coming uh, and, and meets them. You know, it's not, it, it's uh, knowing all that was going to happen to him in John chapter 18. He says, who is it you want? I mean, he's meeting them and in a sense protecting his 12 or his 11 that are left. Judas is with them. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, I am he. He's giving himself up willingly. He said, come and, and do what you, what you have to do. Judas points him out by going up and kissing him. We're going to talk about that kiss in just a little bit. But betrays him with a kiss. And immediately is ushered into what I call the kangaroo court. Uh, These the six trials that he has to face. Um, upon arrest, and of course we have the, the story of uh, Peter, good old zealous Peter, grabbing a sword, which apparently he was carrying with him. Um, he had with him for protection. They must have sensed something was up, something not right. Or no, he grabbed the soldier's sword, sorry. Grabbed the sword wherever he got it, whacks off the soldier's ear. And Jesus immediately heals it and goes quietly. Uh, even argues with him, why, why all the big crowd? Why, why all this fuss? He said, I, I'm, you know, do what you have to do. Uh, and, and went willingly uh, to them. And so uh, he's ushered into Annas. Uh, Annas is the former high priest. Uh, the high priest served for a time and then would be replaced. Annas was still alive and really carried a lot of clout with the Sanhedrin. Not because he should have, he was the former high priest, but his son-in-law, Caiaphas, was the new high priest, and Caiaphas went to Annas. So Annas still pretty much ruled, even though he never had to leave his house to do it, uh, because he would pretty much tell Caiaphas what to do, and Caiaphas would go and do it, and people would come and, and look. So they immediately took Jesus to Annas' house. Annas questioned him, uh, went through kind of a trial, although it not a formal trial. He went through some serious questioning. Um, and then Anna sent him to Caiaphas, uh, to the high priest's palace, which probably was down here near the upper room. This would be the house of Caiaphas, uh, is where the high priest would have lived. We don't know where Annas' house was, um, but they would have drug him from Gethsemane to wherever Annas' house was, to the house of Caiaphas. Uh, after Caiaphas, he goes to the Sanhedrin, which would be at the temple, is where the Sanhedrin would be. They ruled the temple. Um, and so uh, that trial number three, the third trial, is uh, the front in the Sanhedrin uh, at Caiaphas' palace. They all gathered there. Um, and it was during that trial, before the Sanhedrin, that Judas had remorse. I think Judas thought something else was going to happen. And when he saw the way in which this was going, he was remorseful. We don't know that he was repentant. In fact, we're probably pretty sure he wasn't. He felt bad about what happened, but not repented about it. And it was at this point that he took the money that he had sold Jesus for and threw it back uh, into the temple, back to the uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests, and they said, we can't use that money. That's, you know, <laughs> that's kind of illegally gotten. It's bribe money. We, we're, we can't use that for the temple. And they went out and bought the field, Judas, the field that Judas hung himself in. Judas went out and hung himself. And, uh, and so this, this happened probably somewhere during this third trial. Now, this is early morning, day six. This is early morning, Friday. Uh, the trial of Annas and, and Caiaphas, at the Caiaphas questioning would have been early morning Friday, late Thursday, early morning Friday. They, we don't know exactly the timetable. So somewhere in here, Friday started. Um, and, uh, but we're pretty sure that the trial at the Sanhedrin would have been taken Friday morning. Judas would have gone out Friday morning and hung himself. Um, the Sanhedrin found him guilty. We read in, in uh, Matthew 27, chapter 1, or verse 1 of Matthew 27. It says, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. 
Now, they decided to do that, but they didn't have the power or the authority to do that, which is why now we have to usher him to Pilate because he is the Roman governor, and only the Roman governor could pronounce someone uh, to be executed. Sanhedrin had no power to do that. So they had to go and convince Pilate that he was worthy of being executed. So now they drag him to Pilate's house, um, which I don't think is on there. Uh, <clears throat> we have the palace of Herod, which he will go to eventually uh, over here, but we don't really have where, Pilate's, where Pilate was staying uh, at that point. It could be this palace right here, uh, which would be in the center of town. Uh, Pilate didn't actually live in Jerusalem. He lived outside of Jerusalem and came in only because of the festival and everything that was happening. So he probably stayed at that palace. So they take him to Pilate, to the praetorium where he is at. And Pilate goes through a whole host of questioning and trying to determine what, what charges are, are you bringing before him. And Pilate, we know, found really nothing, nothing that would stick, no charges that, that he could uh, uh, find him guilty of. Found out that he was a Galilean. And he said, good, maybe I can get him off my back. I'm going to send him. You need to take him to Herod. So they take him, drag him through the town to Herod's palace. Um, Herod wanted to see him, Herod Antipas, one of the sons of Herod the Great, um, who ruled Galilee. Herod had wanted to see him for some time, but for whatever reason had never actually seen him and wanted him to perform a miracle for him, do something spectacular. And Jesus wouldn't, <clears throat> wouldn't do anything. He wouldn't do it. And so Herod had him beaten and sent back to, uh, to Pilate. Pilate, again, finding nothing uh, wrong with him. He's now on trial number six, back to Pilate. Um, and this is when Pilate remembered that there was a custom to release a prisoner. And he thought, surely I can get off the hook here and they'll release Jesus. No, give us Barabbas. That was who they wanted. Give us Barabbas. We want Jesus crucified. Free Barabbas. So now his hands are tied and he has to do it. And so he frees Barabbas. And he says, well, I'll just beat Jesus. I'll have him scourged. I'll have him beaten and released. No, crucify him. He said, but there's nothing. I don't have anything, any cause to crucify him. There's nothing charged of. And finally he gave in and said, okay, fine, crucify him. You take him out, have it done. Um, and he went through the whole, washed his hands, his blood be on you and your people. And they said, fine, we'll take that. Um, and sent them on their way. We talked, I think, last week or a couple weeks ago at some point that Pilate was under a little duress because his job was to keep peace. And he had already caused a couple riots with a few of the things, decisions that he had made, and Rome was not looking too highly upon him. And so he had to really appease the people and give them what he wanted. And he was trying everything he could to not have Jesus crucified, but in the end, to avoid the riot he thought would happen, he handed him over. Um, and so uh, at that point, he's taken out by Pilate's guards. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's put the crown of thorns on, um, blindfolded, all of those horrendous, horrible things that we're going to look at next week as to what all went into that. And then he is taken out and crucified uh, between two thieves. And uh, we're going to look at crucifixion much more in detail next week. Um, and what that cross meant. And a lot of the physical that went through it, a lot of the emotional and the pain that went through it, um, as well as what it means for you and I, doctrinally, theologically, what did the cross mean? Um, so we're going to look at, at all of those aspects, as well as next week, the seven sayings, the seven things Jesus said from the cross. There's seven different phrases or words, things that he said while he was on the cross, and we're going to look at those next week too. So um, Matthew 27, 35, Mark 15, 21, Luke 23, 33, and John 19, 18 all talk about the crucifixion and the actual uh, event and then the death of Jesus. Um, John chapter 19 is the only one that mentions his burial. And after he, was di after he died, and we'll talk about that too, about how it was the, the quickness of his death was uncommon. Um, they wanted to hurry up and get them all off the cross because the Passover was coming. Friday night w was coming, and this was mid-afternoon. 
and they needed to get them off the cross so that they could carry on with their Passover, so they were going to break their legs. Jesus was already dead, which was a surprise to them. Um, and Joseph of Arimathea, John chapter 19, verse 38, uh, says that Joseph of Arimathea was interested in burying. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb uh, was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Um, in that tomb. And so here we see that Joseph of Arimathea, we don't know a lot about him, but he feared the Jews too, so he must have had some, uh, whether he too was a Pharisee, um, had some uh, title with the Jews that uh, he went secretly and, and was a disciple, was a believer of Jesus. And we can see here that Nicodemus apparently had come around um, after his conversation that, that he too uh, was, was helping in this, in this burial, uh, that he was not like the other Pharisees uh, in this. So we don't know a whole lot about Joseph uh, other than he uh, provided the burial uh, that needed to take place and, uh, and then buried him. Day seven, we don't know, a, I mean, it's Saturday. The Pharisees meet with Pilate and request a guard because they remember that they said he was going to raise on three days, so let's, let's put a guard there. And Pilate said, fine, do whatever you must. And they, they put guards uh, at, the, at, the, uh, at the tomb. Uh, and then we see, and this isn't in the Gospels, but Jesus on Saturday or Friday, we don't know exactly again, Friday, how long, Saturday, for Jesus, it, time mattered not at that point. Um, he actually descended down into Hades, into hell, and preached and taught. Um, he spoke to those that had fallen, uh, those fallen saints from Noah's day. Uh, he spoke to them as well as he spoke encouragement uh, to the saints uh, that were there too. Now that sounds a little confusing. Um, let me go into my little uh, Revelation last days uh, teaching mode here. Um, what we have actually, I think it's in your notes. Yeah, the highlights of the final week of Jesus' life. We're going to go back through and kind of highlight some of the things that happened. We've walked through it. Um, Jesus is preaching in Hades on Friday and Saturday. This is a commonly held belief that this is what Jesus did. He wasn't, his body wasn't laying there dead. He was alive, okay, at that point. Physically, the body was there, but Jesus was still alive. His spirit was still there, uh, was still active, and 1 Peter chapter 3 says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, some of you maybe have read and never realized that, that Jesus there went down to hell, to Hades, and preached to those that didn't believe Noah and, and spent time preaching to them. Um, proclaiming truth to the imprisoned spirit. Um, and he not only preached to the lost, but he preached to the saved and emptied that part of Hades. Because it says in Ephesians chapter 4, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That whole, that whole notion that he had descended into hell and was talking to the spirits that were there. And when he ascended, he brought the captives out. He brought those that were righteous out. Now, let me see if I can paint this picture for you that it makes a little more sense. Luke chapter 16. Turn to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, Jesus is talking in verse 19 about the rich man and Lazarus. He said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. 
At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, Lazarus, not a real great life. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, what is Abraham's side? Okay, we understand Abraham's side to be Hades. Okay, Hades is the hell right now. If someone dies as an unbeliever, they go to Hades. Okay, before Jesus rose, before Jesus died, before the cross, there was a righteous compartment of Hades, and there was an unrighteous compartment of Hades. So whenever anyone died, Old Testament, New Testament, up to the time of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, when a person died, they went to Hades. We see here that the beggar, who was faithful to God, apparently, the angels carried him to Abraham's side, to Abraham's bosom. That would be considered the righteous compartment of Hades. The rich man also died and was buried and was buried in hell where he was in torment. That word for hell is actually the Greek word Hades. Okay? Hades, Gehenna, both of those we translate hell, but they're two different places. Um, in Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. So here we have this, compart- this Hades. And apparently it has an unrighteous compartment where the rich man went when he died. And over this great chasm, over this far distance, he could see Abraham in the righteous compartment where Lazarus and Abraham and I have to believe all of the other saints were. And he said, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So picture Hades as this large area with a great chasm in between, an unrighteous side and a righteous side. The rich man went to the unrighteous side, agony, hell, torment, heat, hot. I mean, everything is, is, is agony over there. Abraham's bosom, the righteous side, there is comfort, there is peace. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. He descended down into Haiti and preached to those in the unrighteous side. I have no idea what he said. What do you say to him at that time? Nah, 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 nah. I don't think he did that, but he could have. But he proclaimed something to them. And then he would have gone to the other side, the righteous compartment, and when he ascended, he took the captives with him. And the thief on the cross, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. He emptied the righteous compartment of Hades where there was Uh, the great chasm, and now ushered them into paradise. Where now, if a saint dies, my mom, your loved ones, uh, my my grandmother, uh, when they die, they go to paradise. Jesus says, he wants to comfort them in John chapter 14. And he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me and my Father's house with many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. That's where he is going. He has gone to prepare paradise. Not heaven. Not the heaven that we're we're awaiting eternal life, the new heaven and the new earth, the new city. But Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you so that when you die, you'll come and be where I am. He told the thief, today that's going to happen for you. But Jesus took the captives and set them free and ushered them into paradise where he is preparing a room for all of the other saints that die from that moment on. Jesus will come and meet them. Yeah. I don't know that much about it, uh, the teachings on purgatory, other than I know it's not true. Um, but I believe this is one of the areas that they look to 
to determine that there is a purgatory. It seems like there is a, a holding place where people can go and you can pray for them and then eventually they would be saved. Um, it's not true, but yeah, they may look at this and, and see that. Um, and so Jesus now has created. So if a saint dies today, Jesus takes them to his father's house where there are many rooms. And, and eternity starts right there. And then there's, there's going to, and let me just fast forward again, that when Jesus returns the second time, at the second coming of Christ, he's going to take all of those that are in paradise, and he's going to come back to the earth and lead the way, and the saints who are here uh, are going to join them in the air. And then later on, after the great white throne judgment, the new heaven and the new earth, the all the eternal, the, the, the city of glass and the, the gold streets and all of that, that comes in later. So right now, when a person dies who's a believer, they go to paradise, that, that place where Jesus has gone to prepare that, that we will go. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. So that when a person dies, Jesus comes and ushers them back into paradise. That's something to look forward to in your own death. The first person you're going to see, you take your last breath here, you take your first breath there, and the first thing your eyes are going to see is Jesus. Hallelujah. I got chills just saying it. You know, we think heaven, oh, the streets of gold, and then, uh-uh, Jesus. Nothing else is going to measure up to that. Everything else is just going to be secondary. Your last breath here, your first breath there, die, look up, open your eyes in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, Jesus. Come, today, you're with me in paradise. <laughs> Not a bad deal, is it? I said, death doesn't scare me, it's the process that just has us worried. Um, the outcome we know. And so this is Jesus going down to Hades. That's a long explanation of kind of what happened and, and what Jesus was doing on that Friday after his death on the cross and prior to his resurrection Sunday morning. He was ministering. He was taking the, the captives out of the righteous compartment, Abraham and Moses and, and all of those, and setting up paradise and ushering them in at that point. Second highlight, this whole last Passover feast, and we are right in calling it the Last Supper. Um, John MacArthur in his book, The Murder of Jesus, which is probably one of the best I've ever read on these last seven days. Um, a lot of what we've talked about tonight has come from that book uh, as well as others, but that's kind of been a base. It says it was the last Passover sanctioned by God. Okay, think about that. Jewish history, they've had Passovers ever since Moses. Okay, this one that Jesus had was the last one sanctioned by God. They have had other Passovers since then. It's still on our calendar. But this is the last one sanctioned by God because from this point on, they're no longer needed. Jesus has come. The final sacrifice. The one who, would, who was the Passover lamb has come. And so this indeed was the, the last Passover sanctioned by God. The Old Covenant, along with all the ceremonial elements that pertain to it, was about to be brought to a close with the ushering in of a glorious new covenant that would never pass away. The feast and rituals and priesthood of the Mosaic uh, economy all pointed forward to the great high priest who would offer one sacrifice for sins forever. And at that point, everything else went out the window, new covenant. Okay, Jesus said, this is my blood, new covenant that I'm giving to you. And from this point on, it was to be. Now, the idea of drinking blood would have made the strictest of Jews repulse. When Jesus said that, this is a new covenant in my blood, this, this cup is, is my blood, take and drink, the good Jew would have went, <laughs> no, can't do it, because it was against their law. It says, uh, the Old Testament law forbid the eating or drinking of blood, Okay. Leviticus chapter 17, I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. Okay? 
the blood was sacred. Because Hebrews tells us, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so this idea of drinking blood would have repulsed most of the Jews. And I think the, the disciples probably even questioned, what is he talking about? But the Holy Spirit would have brought all of that to their mind later on, and they would have understood that this sacrifice, that it was a symbol of what Jesus was about to do. And to the point of the, the bread being his body and the, and the cup being his blood and the necessary, uh, how necessary it was for the blood to be the forgiveness and that Jesus' death was then the, the forgiveness of all and that that last supper, that sharing of the bread together and the sharing of the cup together was something that they needed to continue to do in remembrance of him. Um, now, the Roman Catholic Church has taken these words to the extreme. Those of you who've grown up Catholic uh, and understood some of this, um, believing that when one takes communion, the bread and the wine actually become the flesh and blood of Jesus. Um, it's called transubstantiation. Uh, there is no evidence that the disciples believed that it was anything but symbolic. One, they wouldn't have done it if they were good Jews because they don't drink blood. And two, this is his body and this is his blood, but his body and his blood were totally contained right there in front of them. So they would have seen that cup and that bread as nothing but symbolic of what was about to happen, and I think they would have only realized that on the other side as the Holy Spirit brought it to their mind, that they began understanding what that, that body and the blood represented. So um, even some evangelical Christian denominations place too high of an emphasis on communion. It has a right place. It has a right emphasis. It should be remembered. Um, one such denomination that I actually grew up in, I won't mention who they are, takes, uh, they, they remember the Lord's Supper. They take the, the communion every week. Not that that's, there's anything wrong with that because it's as often as you take it. Okay, is what the Bible says. When you do it, do it in remembrance of me. But it doesn't say how many times we need to do it or how often we need to do it. But they would take it every week, even to the point to where I heard one of the leaders say, I would hate to die on Tuesday if I had not had communion on Sunday. See, taking it has nothing to do with our salvation. We don't earn our salvation by taking communion. See, they've, they've placed too high of an emphasis on communion. Communion was, is simply to remind us. It's, it's to allow us to step back and remember everything we've been talking about for the last 55 minutes. Remember what Jesus went through. Remember the high cost of your salvation. Remember and what we're going to spend an hour plus talking about next week. Remember the blood. Remember the body. Remember what Jesus has done. That's what communion's all about. And we hear most Alliance churches once a month. It used to be the first Sunday of every month was Communion Sunday. Um, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. We don't want it to become rote. We don't want it to just be something we do. And so we want to make it to where it actually fits into the flow of what's happening. And so as Denny looks at his sermons and, and he looks ahead and he's like, you know what, the first Sunday of the month is here, but, you know, communion will fit a whole lot better with the next sermon. Okay, well, let's do it when it really fits then, when it really is going to have meaning and purpose so that it doesn't just become something we do. And, uh, and so we, we have to have that. John shares the, the washing of the feet in his upper room account. Uh, doesn't mention the bread and the cup. Jesus gives very little instruction about the Lord's Supper uh, other than as a reminder of what he has done. And Paul adds that we should examine ourselves because they had forgotten. And he says, you know what? You need to come up and part of that remembrance is remembrance who you are. Remember the sin in your own life and your need for this and examine yourself prior to. Yeah, yeah, they shared a meal together prior to this communion, prior to the remembrance that it, it had become that to where it was a reason to come together. And so they, you know, when a church comes together, you've got to have food. And so they made a meal out of it and then communion afterwards. But the meal became such a big thing and it almost became a drunken party that communion just got lost. And Paul said, look, you need to step back. 
and do this right. Because the way you're doing it is causing you more harm than it is good. Um, and so, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Go through and read that at some point. That's Paul's instructions um, on that. We see in the, in the garden that Jesus sweat drops of blood. Um, and in the garden, we get this glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. Um, agonizing over the situation before him, pleading with the Father, the sorrow, even to the point of sweating blood. I don't know if you've ever done that. I haven't. I mean, I've sweat. I can sweat like that. It doesn't take a whole lot for me to start sweating. I start playing basketball or whatever. My shirt is drenched. Um, You know, I, I can sweat pretty easily, work up a sweat pretty easily. But I've never sweat blood. I have eaten garlic chicken at a Chinese restaurant one night and played basketball the next morning and sweat garlic. I mean, I smelled nasty on the basketball court that night. It was great garlic chicken Friday night, but Saturday morning on the basketball court, it was a little rough. Um, I I played defense really well because no one would get close to me. Um, But this idea of sweating blood actually is a physical phenomenon. John MacArthur says that describes a rare but well-documented malady known as something, hermeditrosis, that sometimes occurs under heavy emotional distress. Subcontaneous capillaries burst under stress and the blood mingles with one's perspiration exiting through the sweat glands. Physical phenomenon. Jesus had high stress, okay? Nothing more stressful than what he was going through at that moment, knowing that within hours... Within minutes, what was going to happen to him? And he sweat drops of blood. Part of it, that prayer was the removing of the cup, if at all possible, is what he wanted done. The cup Jesus prayed about was not the pain, not the suffering, not the humiliation, not even death on the cross, not the pain that was going to go with that. Um, because these, he told the disciples, would happen to them, expect it, and they should not fear it. He had taught it back in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus is wanting the cup removed was the outpouring of God's wrath that he was going to have to undergo for sin. That hu- the humiliation, the mockery, the pain, the, the beatings, the blindfold, the spit upon, the pain of the cross, fine, okay? Don't worry about what can happen to the body. He didn't want the wrath of God. He says, is there any other way to do this? Because he knew the torment that that would be. And that's what he was wanting removed. He said, if there is any other way, yet not what I want, but what you want. And the thing we learn there is, There is no other way. Because had there been another way, God would have probably taken him up on the offer. But God saw no other way to remove the sin, to remove a way for man to to be, uh, relationship with God to be restored, other than the, the sinless perfection of Jesus, to be crucified, to take upon his back all of the sins of the world. And we'll look at that next week, what that meant. and then to, to come out the other side and offer forgiveness to us. So this removing of the cup is that if there's any other way than the outpouring of God's wrath on him uh, to do it. This arresting party, don't worry, we're not going to get to the kangaroo court. I'm going to take the next two and we'll do the kangaroo court next week. This arresting party, um, Jewish citizens, no doubt were a part of this mob, showed up in the garden, would have been formed by the chief priests and the Pharisees, would have brought these people together. Uh, They wanted to make a uh, a, a spectacle of the whole thing. They got the temple guard. Uh, These were the temple police and were given authority by Rome to arrest people who had violated Jewish law. And so when the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the Sadducees came to the temple guard and said, look, we got a guy that's praying in the garden. Here's the charges against him. We need to go and, and arrest him. The temple guard would have gone with them. It was their job. It was their job to follow through with whatever the Sanhedrin had told them they needed to do. And then there were Roman soldiers. The Sanhedrin would have involved Rome uh, because they were desiring the death of Jesus, and they knew they had no power or authority to do that. And so we need to get Rome involved too. And so they, 
they asked for Roman soldiers to go. And uh, again, there was a garrison of Roman soldiers stationed near the temple. That's those four little rectangles right above the temple, that fortress of Antonia. Um, that's where these Roman soldiers would have been stationed. Um, and uh, we don't know the size of the group, but a Roman garrison could house up to 600 soldiers. And so even if only half of them went, and the crowd, I mean, this is quite the crowd that's showing up to arrest one man who's more than willing to go. Uh, he said, you guys didn't need all this, really, um, that he would go willingly. And then we see that after they all got there, that Jesus was betrayed by a kiss from Judas. Uh, the kiss in their culture was a sign of respect and honor. And Jesus even asks him, uh, do you betray me with a kiss? Really, Judas, of all the things you could have done, why do you use a kiss? Because a kiss is a sign of respect and a sign of honor. And I can't help but think that question that Jesus asks Judas, really, a kiss, had to hit home with him. Had to shake him just a little bit. Because slaves kiss their master's feet out of honor and respect. A slave would kiss the master's foot. A disciple would kiss their master's garment. And generally, a kiss would be to the hand of someone special. But to kiss the face and embrace showed personal friendship and affection reserved only for your closest, closest, dearest friends. And Judas chose that. An embrace and a kiss. And Jesus said, really, do what you got to do. The word used for kiss, and there are many words, is the same kiss that was used when the woman anointed Jesus' feet and kissed them. Anointed them with her tears, wiped the tears and the oil, and, and kissed his feet. It's the same kiss, the same honor, the same respect, the same act of worship Judas used. No, I don't want to. I want to save it. We got a lot. There's nothing to fill in. You can read through them, but we'll, we'll pick up right there and go next week. The thing we need to understand, as I've said all along, is that we need to begin to put this all in perspective, that we need to begin to see the big picture. And we're taking each week and we're looking at little bits of that picture. But to begin to put it all together in our minds, to understand Jesus from birth to death had a mission had a purpose. And that purpose was you and I. That not only do I pray for them, but I pray for those that will believe in their message. And from his death until my death, your death, your death, your death, we have a mission to testify to the truth, to live out the truth that the world might see and to believe. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we are, again, I say it every week, we're thankful for your truth. That you have seen fit to lay it all out before us. That while at times there are things that are hard to understand, your Holy Spirit enables us to see. And that though we see through a, a glass darkly now and we get but a reflection of things and it, sometimes it's foggy, we look forward to the day when, it, when it's all made clear. When Jesus returns. When we go to be with Him in that place that He has gone and that, that He is at now and, and preparing for us. Father, in the meantime, between now and then, would you make us worthy of the calling that you have placed upon us as children of God? Would you make us worthy of, of living every day that when our feet hit the floor, we are your ambassadors, used by you to testify to the truth that Jesus is the ultimate reality. 
Father, until Jesus comes. May we become all things to all men, that by all possible means we might win some. Thank you for a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life that does not need to find meaning and purpose in the things of this world, but in you and you alone. Until that glorious day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. Read through this. We're going to cover it quickly next week because we got a lot of information. We only have two more weeks left. So we got a lot of information to go through. Really, we only have like two days of his life to cover, but it's going to take us two weeks to cover it. So go back, have a great week. Get your nose in the Word at some point and uh, allow God to lead you.